Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, authors Donald Miller and Richard Sharpless discuss their book, The Kingdom of Coal, Work, Enterprise, and Ethnic Communities in the Minefields. Donald Miller, author of The Kingdom of Coal. Uh, in reading this book, it occurred to me that there are so many different aspects to the history of coal that we could probably do an hour on each chapter <laughs> of your book. And since we only have an hour to talk about it, what's the thing we should not miss talking about? Well, it's a, it's a large story. It's a Pennsylvania story, but it's an American story. And we're trying to tell the story of the greatest social transformation that this country has ever experienced, the Industrial Revolution. And that Industrial Revolution began in northeastern Pennsylvania with the discovery and utilization of anthracite coal. And so this is an epic story that, that brings into play the early transportation systems by which they haul the coal out of the region, the creation of the first giant companies in the area, Irish immigration to the area, the rise of labor unions and the Molly Maguires, and it takes the story all the way down to the, uh, to the, to the, uh, to the peak and then decline of the anthracite industry. Um, they almost occur simultaneously, by the way. Uh, anthracite kind of peaks around World War I and then experiences a very precipitous decline after that. So you have in microcosm here the history of the American, of the American Industrial Revolution close in right here in Pennsylvania. Whereas usually, a lot of historians are arguing that industrialization begins with the big water mills at Lowell, Massachusetts, and, and that's where it kind of gets started. But I don't think you have industrialization until you have iron, and you don't have iron until you have coal. And, uh, and those two, iron and coal, are the, are the materials that really make for industrialization, and, those, and they come together first in, northeastern, in the United States, at least in northeastern Pennsylvania. Richard uh, I'd like to add, and, uh, yeah, it's also a story, too, of the people who uh, made this particular industry and, in fact, who made up this culture. Uh, there were, first of all, the Scots-Irish and Germans who were in the region first, and they were followed by the Irish, and then after the Civil War by uh, many nationalities from Eastern and Southern Europe. And they developed unique cultures, uh, their own, and uh, in the process, of course, they built uh, solid communities, built usually around their parishes, their churches and uh, develop the uh, unique ethnic uh, mix that really is Pennsylvania. And so what you see in, throughout Pennsylvania, especially in industrial areas like Pittsburgh, uh, really got its start uh, in the anthracite region, too. Uh, you first wrote this book in 1985. We wrote it, uh, yes. It was uh, first published in late 85, I think early eight, 1986. That's correct. Uh, and it's just been republished by Canal Press? That's correct. Mm -hmm. Is there anything different about it? No, we did not change. Uh, literally anything. Uh, the book is uh, just as it uh, was originally published. Uh, we didn't feel that there was, uh, you know, that even over the period of the, the from 1986 to now, there was uh, uh, really that much to add to the change in the story. It was, uh, we felt a, it is a comprehensive history. It's the first comprehensive history of the region and the culture. And so uh, we were, uh, we were, we were, had a very good reception of the book when it first came out and uh, we've been pleased with it. So it was, uh, it was, it's been republished as it was. Now, both of you teach at Lafayette College? Exactly. In eastern yeah. Pennsylvania? Yes. You yeah. use this book as a text? 
We have. We, we built an entire program around the course, a regional studies program. In fact, the program preceded the course. Uh, we were looking around for a book to use, and uh, the idea of the program was that you can't study something as large and complex as American industrialization on a national scale and make much sense out of it. Um, so we came around to the idea that the way to study this is regionally. Uh, uh, Richard had done a lot of work on regional studies in Latin America, for example, and, um, and I'd been doing some regional studies work on New York City. And uh, so we thought this was an ideal way to do it, where you study the ecology, the land, the geography, and how it shapes people, and people in turn shape the geography, you know, this dialectical relationship between man and the environment. So that's the kind of program we were building, and we were looking around for a book to use and found there, there was none. So we were sitting around a tavern one night having a few beers, and we decided that's we'll write one. That's <laughs> right. It also helped the fact that we both have roots in the anthracite region. Uh, my family originally came from the Wilkes-Barre area, and Don's family uh, uh, lived in the uh, Port uh, Clinton area, the southern Schuylkill coal fields, that area down there. And so uh, we had... Uh, we had personal sentiments and feelings about the uh, the region, and uh, as for, uh, for me personally, I always wanted to write a book about the coal region from the time I was in high school, I think, uh, because I had always been fascinated by uh, this particular part of Pennsylvania, which seemed uh, so different from other parts. Uh, you know, back in when I was growing up in the in the fifties, for example, you could uh, you always were happy to meet somebody from the coal region, and you didn't have to identify in any other way but coal region. And uh, the people seemed to be more friendly, or uh, the, and it, it just uh, it just uh, gave us gave me at least a good feeling. And uh, so, uh, I think the, that those facts helped us too when we uh, set out to do the research for the book. How'd you write it? Uh, it was it's, it was it's a true cooperative effort. Uh, Don did the original research, and then we go over what he thought was uh, was vital for the uh, for the particular chapters. I would go ahead and write a draft. And then he would take it and do revisions and uh, and rewriting, and uh, then we would sit down and uh, go over it again, and uh, then do a, uh, a final draft on it. Uh, it was uh, it was quite an experience. We, by the we way. didn't block it out, in other words, and say like you take half the book, I'll take yeah. half the book. So our our, you know, our, our thumbprints on, on you know on every our individual thumbprints are on every chapter. We wanted to get that sense of continuity. That you're not reading two different authors, you know. So we try to meld it together as best we could. But who are your, some some of your favorite characters who you came across in in writing this? Either people you interviewed or people you you studied. One of the guys that well, Bill Wine is a great character to, for us because Bill Bill Wine, who recently died, uh, is a is a was for forty five years an anthracite miner, and um, he lives up in the New Philadelphia area. Lived up in the New Philadelphia area. And we came across him in a, in a little bar room up in, the, up in the coal regions early on in our research, and we wanted someone that we could talk to who, had act, who was actually a, a skilled anthracite miner who could take us in a mine and show us how the work was done. We wanted to get that sense, I guess what you call it, you know, the, use the pompous word, verisimilitude, feel for the situation. We really wanted to know what it was like to mine coal, and, and, and he was great. He put the helmets on us and took us underground and uh, the picks and shovels and showed us how it was done and the dynamiting and things like that. And we really got a sense and feel for it. And whenever we ran into a tough question, and whenever we were, especially in the chapter where we talk about the mining process, how, how and it is the most dangerous work in the world, I mean, how, how it's done, you know. And, 
and, and we wanted to convey that and, and do it with a lot of accuracy. When we run into a problem, we'd call Bill. We'd go up to see him, and um, he's, he, he, he was a, uh, an absolutely memorable character. He was very patient with us. I think yeah. another, another character, too, uh, one I particularly like was Steve Nelson. Uh, Steve was uh, from originally from what is today, or used to be, I guess, Yugoslavia. And uh, he uh, was an organizer uh, for the Communist Party back in the 1930s. Uh, first out in Detroit, uh, he took part in the, the great strikes of that era there. And uh, later, uh, he was assigned to the uh, anthracite region and became a, a major organizer for the Communist Party in the, in the anthracite region. And he was a wonderful man, uh, tremendous humanity, uh, great sentiments, great feeling. And uh, he uh, introduced us to people. Uh, he, he, was, uh, he was also uh, uh, the political commissar of the uh, Abraham Lincoln Brigade during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, but he was, a, uh, he was a man who had great stories to tell about uh, his, uh, his days in the anthracite region. And until he died, he had a great love uh, for the people of anthracite. He always called them. You always call it the anthracite. The anthracite. Uh, preceded it with a the. Yeah. yeah. He'd come over to Lafayette and, and you know, many times and speak to our students. And uh, he had more life at 89 than any of them, them did. <laughs> <laughs> he, was just, he was just terrific. You yeah. two went into working coal mines? Yes, we sure. did. To research? Yeah. Yes, we yeah, did. Yeah. What was it like? Dark and dangerous. It, it's, it has that feeling, you know. I mean, you know, the walls dripping with water. Um, there's, there's, there's lighting in there now, of course, um, because they're not doing any mining. You know, there's, there's electrical lighting in there. But Bill would take us in and he'd turn all the lights out and put the mining, you know, caps on. He said, "Turn these things out." And Where was this mine? Ashland. 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 He took us to, to some other mines around there. And we also went over to Pottsville, and uh, there's some working mines in the Pottsville area where they were actually doing some dynamiting when we right. were over there. Mm -hmm. And so we really wanted to get that, 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 that real authentic feel for the, uh, for the situation. And we both have relatives that have been in coal mines and things like this. My wife's um, grandfather was a, was a miner for 51 years and uh, was badly hurt, badly burned over nine-tenths of his body in a, in a terrible mine fire. Um, my relatives were all miners and railroad workers uh, in, the, in the Pottsville, Jim Thorpe area. Um, so, you know, we've had some experience there. I actually went in the mines when I was fairly young because we lived about a block in Wilkes-Barre, about a block and a half from a, from a mine, a drift mine. And, in fact, one of my earliest memories that happened during World War II uh, was uh, of a mine accident. And I remember a very cold November day, uh, standing around the uh, uh, the colliery with uh, the people who were waiting to get word on on their uh, loved ones who, who were down below. And uh, there was the ambulance there, and uh, it was a very solemn, very sad, uh, 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 you know, uh, time. And uh, it made a tremendous impression on me uh, that these, these these seeing these. Uh, adults that I knew very well, you know, very stoically waiting for this uh, word on what was happening uh, down below. Uh, so, you know, we did have personal experience, uh, uh, which we, you know, tried to then uh, translate into the book. And we were surprised that there was no, no one had written the big story, because it is, a, it, it's a sprawling story. It's a wonderful story and has all the components of great drama in it. And, uh... There was no one single book that, that, that brought it all together. Yeah. Donald Miller, where did you grow up? Reading, Pennsylvania. Um, my father was born in um, 
a little town about 30 miles up from Reading, you know, Port Clinton, uh, which is right at the, the edge of, of, of the coal regions. And my mother was born in, in, in Reading. Um, one's of German instinct, uh, and, and the other is of um, my mother is kind of is, is Slovak, and uh, primarily my, my father is Irish and German. Yeah. Where'd you go to school? Went to school in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Bishop McDevitt High School, and then went to college out in western Pennsylvania to St. Vincent's College. You might not know it, the Princeton of the Alleghenies. <laughs> Little Benedictine school out there, and, uh, and then on to graduate school at the University of Maryland. Studying? I studied history, yeah. Did a lot, did st uh, was a major in philosophy as an undergraduate, and then went on to history later on, yeah. But had no interest in this sort of thing when I was in college. What do you teach now? I teach, I guess you'd call me professor of things in general. <laughs> I teach a myriad of things and uh, I have a research chair and I'm teaching mostly things, I am fortunate in this regard, I'm teaching mostly things that I'm working on. I do a lot of television work and I do a lot of writing. So I'm doing courses that are directly related to what I'm writing about and teaching about. For example, that's. We, we had the wonderful ability to, to combine the teaching of this book with the writing of the book, and, and that, that helped it along. But right now I'm doing a book on the Civil War on, on Vicksburg, and I'm doing a big book on New York City in the 1920s and 30s. So those are the courses that I teach. Richard Sharpless, you said you grew up in Wilkes-Barre? Part, part of the time I grew up in Wilkes-Barre. I came from a sort of schizophrenic family, the region. My uh, father's family, uh, descendants of Quakers, and they were, they were Protestant, middle-class professionals. My mother's family came from Lithuania. They were immigrant, Catholic, working class, started out as a miner. My grandfather learned mining in South Africa, learned diamond mining in South Africa, and uh, then came to the United States and uh, took up mining here. He was injured and uh, then opened a saloon, as all good Lithuanians, I do, guess, do eventually. In <laughs> Where Wilkes was that? In Wilkes-Barre. Wilkes and so I grew up, uh, especially in World War II, my father was away, my mother was... Uh, I was working in defense plants, and I spent most of my time in growing up in Wilkes-Barre, and uh, uh, would sort of go back and forth between these two families. Uh, Saturday night was the raucous, uh, ethnic, uh, beer-loving uh, uh, Lithuanian family, and Sunday was always the very proper uh, roast beef dinner at the uh, at the Sharplesses. So, uh, what was your Lithuanian <laughs> family name? Uh, Shergalis. Gallus. It was actually, uh, that was the Americanization of the name. I think uh, some immigration official probably couldn't spell Sargallus, so they changed it to Shergalus at Ellis Island. Uh, so it was, uh, you know, it was a very, uh, it was an interesting uh, way to grow up because I got two, uh, two sides of this, uh, so to speak. My uncle, for example, was an attorney for mine companies, coal mining companies, while my, some of my other relatives, one uncle in particular, was, a, uh, uh, was an organizer for the United Mine Workers. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, uh, I did get both sides of the story, so to speak, while I was growing up there. And your schooling? Uh, I went to Elizabethtown College, actually, and then uh, to Penn, and uh, eventually got a Ph.D. from Rutgers University. How'd you uh, find your way to Lafayette? Well, interestingly enough, I'm, uh, I, my original uh, interest was Latin America, as Don mentioned earlier. And, uh, but while I was studying Latin America and, and, and writing uh, about it, uh, uh, I, I began to see that the process of industrialization and economic development generally uh, that occurred in, uh, in places like the Sugar Islands or the Caribbean uh, was repeated in a way in our own industrial areas. And uh, so 
I began to look at the United States, especially the areas around uh, Wilkes-Barre and Scranton that had gone through this process of economic development and then when the national economy moved on, went into this period of decline, just to say sugar did, for example, in the West Indies uh, in the 19th century. And uh, so I came back then, almost full circle, so to speak, back to, uh, back to studying about uh, industrialization here. That's, in that's something a lot of people don't appreciate in Pennsylvania, you know? I mean, you're, you're never appreciated in your own home, your own state, but you don't appreciate your own home in your own state until you get away. Um, we were both watching, um, well, at, at, separate, at separate times, actually. I was teaching in, uh, at, at Oxford University in England, and uh, I was team teaching a course with a colleague at Oxford on the, on the Industrial Revolution. And he said he had some interesting film material to show me. And it was a film on the, American on, on the Industrial Revolution worldwide. It started with Britain and the Severn River Valley and, 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 and the original production of iron in that valley. And said this is the center of the 18th century Industrial Revolution right here in the valley. And in the next scene, begins in Eastern Pennsylvania. There's a guy standing there. I said, I know that place. I live there. Yeah, we live right here. And yeah. he said, follow, follow this. This is Eastern Pennsylvania. Follow this river, the Lehigh River, up beyond Allentown, Bethlehem, into the anthracite region. And this is the center of the American Industrial Revolution. And for the, the next hour, that was it. And I said... It was a kind of light went on. Yeah, you know, the, the, sudden, the light you know, goes on. You know, you say, this, this isn't a local story. Yeah, this yeah. is an international story. In fact, the uh, a Society for Industrial Archaeology, which goes all over the world studying the archaeology of industrialization, the, the first tour they did was, of course, in Manchester, England, which is really the seat and center of early industrialization. But the second tour was of the Pennsylvania anthracite region. So they had something like 300 uh, industrial archaeologists from all over the world uh, descend on northeastern Pennsylvania to try to take a look at it and study it and see what was... You know, we, we sort of assumed that, uh, you know, that the, the industrialization had occurred in New England as we've read and been told and everything. And uh, uh, so it was, uh, it, was, it was somewhat of a surprise, I guess, to us that uh, the English, at least, seemed to think that the, that's not the story, that the, the story really occurred here in northeastern Pennsylvania. And uh, that's, that's, then we began to look at this a little more closely, and it made sense. Yeah. Uh, there was a there was an historian I believe it was, it was at Harvard Alfred Chandler who all who had written an article uh, making the same point arguing that uh, the industrial revolution was really not indigenous to New England that the the, the uh, industrial revolution began in Pennsylvania and the reason is because of this energy source uh, in, Eng in New England there was water power but that was very limited and could not sustain economic development of the kind that uh, could be sustained by say iron based on coal. And so, uh, using that logic, he, he came to the conclusion that it was, in fact, here in northeastern Pennsylvania that the Industrial Revolution really began. I, I might note that in publications put out by the Commonwealth, they argue that point. Now, this is where the Industrial Revolution began. I've noticed that. Hmm. For people who are from other parts of the state and might not know, when you talk about the anthracite region, where exactly are you talking about? Well, it's an area, uh, the best way to, to think about it is Route 22, you're driving Route 22 across the state, and um, you come to Hamburg, Pennsylvania, and you just head north up through Hamburg and into Port Clinton and, and through the Gap and into Pottsville and, and follow that line west all the way up um, to, to just north of Wilkes-Barre. And that corner of Pennsylvania, um, that northeastern corner of Pennsylvania is where you have 
over 85 to perhaps 90 percent of the uh, ant deposits of anthracite in the world are located in that in that region. Yeah, we, we like to say it's sort of between the uh, Susquehanna River uh, on the west and north and uh, the Lehigh uh, River uh, and the Schuylkill River. Uh, they flow sort of southeast and it's uh, it, the coal fields actually extend into the northern part of Dauphin County and then as far north as uh, just north of uh, Scranton in uh, uh, in Port Carbon, that, that area there. And they're not connected. There are three major fields. Uh, but uh, as Don said, there's about 75% of all the world's anthracite hard coal is located there. What's so special about anthracite? It has a very high carbon content. It burns intensely, and it's it's smokeless. It doesn't pollute. Something uh, I learned. Yes, uh, it, it it makes uh, it makes an ideal fuel for uh, for cooking and for home heating and for uh, urban use because of its low uh, 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 pollution factor. Um, Something I learned from your book, you, you quote uh, someone as saying uh, that they had a hard time getting anthracite to burn yeah, that's right. in the beginning that's right. and, yeah, and it occurred yeah. to me that they didn't know they didn't how to do how it. To use it. Yeah. And you have uh, one person saying if the world should take fire the Lehigh coal mine would be the safest retreat, the last place to burn. <laughs> right, right. An early experimenter in right. anthracite. Because they couldn't get it to burn. Yeah. 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 You, could, you could get a small piece of anthracite and, and, and put a lighter under it for an entire day, and you're not going to get that thing to, to ignite. Uh, so it has, it has that tightness to it. So bituminous is, is very loose, and it throws a lot of pollutants into the air. Consequently, a place like, um, say, Pittsburgh, where the home heating was done with uh, with bitumen. Of course, Pittsburgh had other problems with the mills and things like that. It was a much dirtier place than uh, the air was was far far more polluted and dirtier than than Philadelphia, which used clean burning anthracite. You know? What is it about the Northeast that caused anthracite to form there? What's okay, it made out? There, there was uh, uh, millions of years ago. There was the, the middle part of the continent was a vast lake, and periodically uh, the, the movement of this water would flow into that area. And all of the vegetation, the, uh, the uh, remains of animals would gradually be pressed down into the, into the surface of the earth. And over eons of time, uh, as a result of this tremendous pressure, uh, there would be various uh, kinds of uh, what we call coal today uh, forming. Uh, but in the anthracite, in the Appalachians, there was a massive upheaval for whatever reason, I don't know. And uh, the, the tremendous pressure caused by this upheaval hardened. Uh, this coal to make uh, anthracite. Whereas, for example, out in the Pittsburgh area, in the western part of Pennsylvania, uh, you have bituminous, and that's soft coal, really, and it, uh, it lies in beds uh, that are relatively uh, horizontal or level. Uh, but in anthracite, because of this upheaval from the earth and because of the pressure, uh, it is, uh, the, the, the coal seams uh, uh, sh shoot up at sharp angles and are under much more intense pressure. And uh, that gave it the, the the content that we call uh, anthracite, hard coal, the high carbon. Uh, makes it hard to get at, makes it dangerous to mine also. Yeah. How'd the industry get started? Well, it got started with pick and shovel capitalists, um, kind of like the, um, the gold rush in California. And, uh, he referred to the it coal was really the first, yeah. It was the first energy crisis in the country, really, yeah. that uh, brought it on. It was during the War of 1812 with the British blockade and the fact that uh, Big cities like Philadelphia were very dependent on uh, on charcoal and on uh, wood, uh, but you know by the uh, by the early 19th century the forests were receding as a result of the cutting and what have you, and getting wood was becoming more and more expensive. 
Uh, coal had been used. It had been brought in from Britain on ships as ballast. Uh, so coal had been used, mm -hmm. uh, but not in the great quantities that were necessary. So really it was that uh, crisis that gave uh, a uh, boost uh, to the use of anthracite. And from there, of course, after, after the technology was uh, developed that uh, showed it could be burned uh, readily in hearths and in stoves, uh, and it could be used for industrial um, uh, processes, uh, it literally took off because it was the first American energy source, really. And it's a prototypical American industry in the sense that you get the small guys in there first, the explorers and the, and the early entrepreneurs. And, and as Dick says, once this thing gets triggered, the big money comes in from the Girard estate in Philadelphia, from he heavy investment from New York capitals, capitalists. And, and, and the region becomes, by the end of the 19th century, a colony, really, that's split kind of in two. The southernmost region is heavily uh, oriented toward Philadelphia. And it's Philadelphia money that controls it. And, and, and the area angling more toward New York is controlled by New York, and it's New York money that's controlling it. In fact, um, the leading figure for understanding the coal region in 1900 is, is J. Pierpont Morgan, who owned and consolidated all the railroads of, of the region. And the railroads, in turn, owned most of the mines. So much of the area by 1900 is a colony of either New York or Philadelphia. It's a really a classic story of, of American capitalism. Uh, starting out with individual uh, entrepreneurs, uh, family operations, and uh, gradually uh, being taken over by uh, capital that comes in from the outside, and finally, as Don said, dominated by the uh, by the huge trusts at the end of the century. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a it's a it's a story of American capitalism, really, uh, in one small corner of Pennsylvania. Don Miller, you mentioned the railroads, and you also write about the canals. Can you explain how that whole system worked when they, once they found it, the coal, how they got it to market? Well, the rivers that run through the region um, are very shallow. And um, you can mine the coal and put them on what they call coal arcs, but it's very difficult to get these coal arcs down to a place like Bristol, which is the, the port you know, north of Philadelphia that, that, that was used to, to store the coal. So um, they would build these huge wing dams across the river, like to, to dam up the river, and then they'd line these boats up like so many little toy boats, and they'd break the dam apart, and these coal boats would go flying down to Philadelphia, you know, 135 miles down, and about 90% of them were in wreck and ruin by the time they got to Philadelphia, but some got through. And then they finally decided on the idea uh, when they had more capital of developing a, a canal system. So the canals were the, were the, the arteries that took, a, that took the water highways that brought the coal to major markets like New York and, uh, and, and Philadelphia. And canals were built, the Morris Canal, for example, was built straight across to, uh, to the Hudson River eventually uh, and, and fed New York. The From where? Where does it start? That starts out near Scranton and uh, west of Scranton and uh, actually jumps uh, uh, the river over there. Um, John Roebling built, uh, yeah, the bridge, the, the, built the Brooklyn Bridge, bridge. Built, the, uh, built the viaduct um, that, that, you know, that took the canal boats across there. So the canal boats literally sail over a bridge you know, and, uh, at, at Honesdale and across to New York and, uh, and, and into Perth Amboy and places like that. Yeah. And the Delaware Canal, of course, and the Lehigh Canals run straight down past Easton uh, and down to Philadelphia. 
The uh, canals were the, the anthracite canals uh, were the first comprehensive uh, inland transportation system in North America. Um, they were, in a, in a sense, they were the interstates of the early 19th century. Who owned them? Uh, some of them were privately owned. Uh, the Lehigh Coal and Navigation Company, for example, owned the, uh, the Lehigh Canal, which ran from uh, up above uh, Jim Thorpe, used to be called Mock Chunk, uh, down to uh, Easton. Uh, but the Delaware Canal that ran from Easton down to uh, Bristol uh, was state-owned. Uh, so it was a mix. Uh, there were, there were state-constructed uh, state and state-owned canals. Yeah, a lot, a lot and, of government uh, money went into those canals, yeah. and they called them internal, internal improvements. improvements. And then no sooner the, can, uh, the canals built and they're knocked right out of the box by their leading competitors, the railroads. And they built the railroad beds right along the canal beds. And so the two were in competition for a while. But, of course, the railroad runs year-round. The canal freezes up for four to five months of the year. And a railroad can carry much more coal than a, than a canal and carry it more cheaply. So the, the competition was was stacked in favor of the railroad from the beginning. And then they become, uh, right up until the end of the coal boom, the chief means of carrying that coal out, out of the region. Transportation's the key, really. Yeah, the railroads got their start in the 1840s. Uh, the Reading was really one of the first and most innovative companies. It ran from Philadelphia up to uh, Pottsville. And uh, the feeder lines were then developed uh, from the mining areas down to the uh, first to the canals and then to the railroad terminals. And so Reading became a kind of prototype of how to develop a, uh, an industrial corporation. Uh, the, the anthracite railroads, in fact, became models then for the railroads that were developed throughout the rest of the United States. Uh, it took a different kind of uh, organization uh, because of the, uh, uh, the space uh, and the uh, factors in the railroads. They were scattered out over uh, large areas of uh, territory, and uh, uh, it was then necessary to reorganize uh, how, how one did business and how to control these things. And so the anthracite railroads then became models of uh, mm -hmm. railroad development for the country as a whole. My relatives came into the region like that, building the railroads. That's a lot. Of, the Irish from Boston and New York would come and dig the railroad beds, lay the track, and, and many stayed. So, you know, Immigration starts, you know, in, in that fashion in the region. I want to show this picture, which uh, you have in your book, which is the Stourbridge Lion. The first uh, locomotive in North America. And in North America. You, you credit it with <coughs> having the first, first train trip in First train trip, that's North correct. America. Right. Right. Did it uh, have any productive life? No, no, no never worked properly. <laughs> One of the problems... That's good. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure it was probably more dangerous to the, uh, to the, uh, to the firemen and the... Uh, and the uh, <laughs> engineer the Where is it <laughs> now? Uh, I think the original was was destroyed. There's a model, I believe. I'm not sure where it is somewhere. There's there's a model of this uh, original Sturbridge line. Is I know it? there's some early uh, there's some early models in a uh, museum that the Chesapeake and former Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad has uh, in Baltimore. It's a it's a railroad museum. There's some similar to that. Is there a place people can go and see some remnants of the canals? Oh yeah, Easton, you know, um, the Easton Canal Museum is, is has has a new headquarters in downtown Easton. They have a beautifully reconstructed. It's a brand new museum; it's not reconstructed, and you get a wonderful sense of the Pennsylvania canals. They have a beautiful uh, lit up map, and you press the map, and one canal appears. Press another, uh, and then the lights for another canal appear. They they have old canal boats, and you can actually take a ride on the canal boat uh, on the. Uh, 
runs about what a mile, a mile and a half. A mile and a half, and during yeah. the warm months, yeah. canals are pulled by the boats are pulled by mules, and uh, so you can go for go for a ride there. And and there's places all over the state where you can um, go into active mines. Is that there's a there's a mine up in uh, up in Scranton that's a tourist attraction, as it were. And there's an also a mine in the in, in in the western part of the uh, of, of the anthracite region. That's Ashland. the one in, in Ashland. That's the one that Bill Wine uh, had. Uh, actually started and, and ran for years. So that gives you, we always take our students there because it gives you a great sense of you know, how coal is taken from the earth, you know, how it's shipped, things like that. So we're lucky in that regard that we have those artifacts. It's kind of like teaching Civil War history and having available the, uh, the, battle of, you know, the f battlefield at Gettysburg. Well, we describe how they would take coal out of the ground? I mean, if they go to a place and say, okay, we know coal is under here, how do they decide how to get it out? Well, they have borings into the ground, first of all. That's, that, that, you know, no pun intended, that's the most boring part of it. But then, then, you, then you dig down in there, and there's all kinds of ways to get underground. Let's say, let's talk about an elevator shaft. Um, it's a straight elevator shaft right down a vertical underground railroad that takes you deep into the earth. These were the deepest of the mines. And um, when you reach the bottom, they, they started to dig out huge tunnels. And then they had to dig out airways. So you have to have air circulating down there. And huge bull fans would move the air underground. Um, dust and coal dust would, would, would build up down there. And don't forget, a lot of these early miners, uh, for illumination, they have lamps that are just flames. Okay? They're not enclosed lights. You know? And this is before the Edison incandescent lamp. And one of those lamps hits that coal dust, and poof, they were losing three men every two days early in the anthracite industry in these, just in these small accidents where they'd go in, they'd find pockets of coal, which would also be pockets of gas. So um, a, a lot of miners met their doom like that. And then you set the whole thing up like that and, and, and you have a constant water problem as well. There's a lot of seepage down there, so you have pumps moving all the time, moving the water out. And uh, then the coal is... Um, mine in, in, in this fashion, the, 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 it's, it's sloped like this. Um, it's not flat. You can't use machinery in there. It's impervious to machinery. So these guys have to crawl up into these holes, um, no higher, say, than a, than, than a coffin. And some of them even wore um, knee pads and, and elbow pads to get up in there. And then you'd stick a, um, you, you'd use a uh, some sort of boring device to dig a hole into the, into the wall of the mine, and you stuck powder in there. You ran a fuse out. You hid behind some rocks or around the corner. You lit the fuse, and you just hope, 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 hope that the, <laughs> the flame gets to the dynamite, the powder. Because if it goes out, then the question becomes, do I go out and get that? <laughs> and it might just be a slow fuse. So a lot of guys were just blown to smithereens like that. And then when the coal's blown off the face, as it's called, um, the miners simply pick it up and they put it into um, in, 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 in the large carts, which are pulled by mules originally and, and later electrical engines, and they're taken out of the mines. What made uh, anthracite mining unique, I think, is the fact that it was really a cottage industry. Uh, because of the nature of the coal seams in the anthracite region, it required hand crafting, hand work, uh, piecework, literally. 
And so each miner had to be a uh, multifaceted uh, worker, had to be a carpenter, had to be a mason, had to know something about uh, powder and explosives, uh, had to be able to detect uh, uh, gases in the mines, as, as Don pointed out. Uh, and uh, this, uh, this created something we call the miners' freedom. It created a kind of independence uh, of attitude among anthracite miners. Uh, they were very, uh, very strong individuals. They were, they were uh, among industrial workers, miners were unique in that respect. Uh, they did not brook much uh, direction by foremen. And we point out in the book I th uh, that uh, uh, <laughs> trying to supervise miners uh, underground over a vast area uh, on an individual basis was extremely difficult uh, because of the craft nature of their work. Uh, they worked. Uh, literally alone. They would have a helper, maybe two helpers, uh, but uh, they would work, uh, you know, you're talking about working hundreds of feet, sometimes a thousand feet or more underground in absolute darkness and silence with the constant fear that the roof is going to come down on you, uh, fear of gases, uh, and, they, and they worked in, the, in these conditions. And so it created a, uh, uh, a we th I think, a sort of unique individual, a very strong, self-reliant, uh, independent-minded worker. Uh, and this contributed, I think, then to the, to the kind of culture that uh, existed above ground, too. What uh, was that culture? Uh, it was a culture that was, uh, uh, first of all, it was unique, I think, in the sense that it was made up of many ethnic groups, of many uh, different kinds of people. Uh, these people were frequently, these groups were frequently divided among themselves. Uh, you know, when the, uh, the Irish came, they, were, uh, they found the English dominated the coal region just as the English dominated Ireland, the place they just left. Then when the uh, Eastern and Southern Europeans came after the Civil War, they found that the uh, English-speaking people dominated them. Uh, but the work itself uh, contributed uh, to, uh, to make, I think, these miners, uh, uh, having those characteristics I just mentioned, the, the independence, the self-reliance, uh, uh, this ability to, uh, uh, to stand up for themselves that many other industrial workers uh, didn't have. Were there miners uh, who enjoyed being miners? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard work. It's, it's very dangerous work, but um, these guys took tremendous pride in yeah, their work. I would say pride yeah. or something. Yeah. And all the miners we talked to, old miners, uh, 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 showed this tremendous pride in what they'd done. Kind of gets, gets in their blood, too, you know, and, 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 and they're proud of it. And they don't think of themselves, as Dick says, as industrial workers, like steel workers. We're different from steel workers, you know. We don't have foremen. Uh, we don't, we're different from auto workers. We don't have assembly lines. Uh, we're on our own in there. But at the same time that they're on their own, they have this bond among themselves. Guy gets hurt. There's an explosion underground. Somebody, a rescue crew has to go in there. There's no lack of, of volunteers. So they have this, this, this kind of uh, communal sense uh, that arises from the work experience. And, uh, and that starts to break down the ethnic differences working together in common underground. Um, as John Mitchell, who was an early mine organizer, used to constantly point out, it's not Irish coal you're mining, it's not Slavic coal you're mining, it's coal. And you've got to start to think in common. And when that begins to occur around the, the start of the 20th century, miners are able to sustain major strikes, hold on through the strike, keep down the ethnic discord, and, and, and win some of the bigger uh, anthracite strikes in the early 20th century. They started young. 
working in the mines. They started oh, yeah. about average age, yeah. I guess, was about nine. They would start in the breakers. These were the big uh, factories where the coal was cleaned and sorted uh, before it was put in the coal cars. Uh, they go into the work in the breakers under uh, conditions that uh, were today would be considered inhuman, uh, and then graduated at around age 12 into uh, into other jobs. Uh, usually on the surface, they would take care of the mules. Uh, they would uh, uh, they would uh, work as uh, in the in the uh, shoveling coal into the steam engines, which ran the hoists and the other machinery for the mines. And then they would go underground and work as uh, door boys. Uh, opening and closing the doors which controlled the flow of air in and out of the mines. And uh, eventually they would become miners' helpers. And of course the last stage, uh, usually when they were in their 20s, was to become a certified miner. And by the late 19th century you had to, uh, to become a certified miner, you had to pass a state examination uh, in English. Uh, and I say in English because uh, learning enough English to get miner certification became a, uh, was a major problem for many of the immigrants. What kind of questions uh, do you have to answer? Uh, basically questions about, uh, about procedures in the mines, uh, questions concerning safety, uh, for example. Uh, the state of Pennsylvania was beginning to pass legislation at the end of the 19th century uh, concerning mine safety. And although many times it was ignored by the coal companies, uh, uh, still, it became a uh, it became important at least to the mines. What kind of powder to use? How much powder to use? Things like that. These kids too, they were tough. I mean, they. They were chewing tobacco at seven and eight. You know, their um, vocabulary would embarrass their teachers. I mean, the, uh, they, were, they were tough kids. And there's a funny thing. Uh, Lewis Hine is a very famous American documentary photographer and um, probably the most famous. And, and some of his most haunting pictures are of these breaker boys. But when you, we examine the pictures, when you look at the pictures, he has his notes on the back, you know, and, and, and he writes about the extraordinary exploitation. How could these children be working under these kinds of conditions? But then you get into the records and you find that their parents want them there and they want to be there. Reason being that everyone had to work to support the family. So a nine-year-old kid that's going to school is a liability in the family financially. That kid has to go to school and he doesn't think of himself as a man until he gets out of school at the age of nine or ten. Right. The, the, uh, the state actually, the state legislature, Pennsylvania, actually passed legislation uh, ruling that uh, children could not be employed in the mines uh, underground, for example, until they were 16. Parents themselves falsified documents so that the children could actually go to work in the mines earlier. Yeah. But this was, this was usually done, uh, as Don mentioned, for economic reasons, uh, for reasons of economic uh, welfare of the family. How well did it pay? Well, you got paid not by the hour. Um, you got paid by the amount of coal that you mined. And coal was a boom and bust industry. So it, it, it's hard, it would be hard to discern exactly how much a coal miner made in a given year. In a good year, a coal miner could make a, a decent wage, equivalent to that of a, of a steel worker. At that time, about 620 or $630, you know, which is about... Sixteen or seventeen thousand dollars around the, around the turn of the century. Again, these uh, the, these uh, figures vary uh, according to time and, and place. But around the turn of the century, a breaker boy could made about uh, sixty cents a day. Uh, they worked uh, if the mines were working full blast. They they would work uh, six days a week, usually up to ten to twelve hours a day. And now these were children. These were not the miners themselves. Problem was life was short because you're. 
emphysema was the big killer. I mean, you're constantly breathing the coal dust. I mean, you're breathing coal dust in those coal breakers. That's, that's where you got most of the coal dust. And uh, that whole breaker would shake, you know, as that coal came down through there. And these kids are picking it out by hand. They're trying to pick the, the slate and the rock from the coal and so that only pure coal runs through there. And the coal would come shooting down there. And you can imagine the, the racket, the noise, the smoke, the soot. They'd all wear bandanas on their faces and things like that. Now, it, excuse, let me interrupt for just a second. This is a picture of a breaker yeah. you have on here. And if you drive up through the anthracite region, you can still see oh, yeah. yes, some there, of these there around. There are still some yeah. left, yes. What happens inside there? Okay, uh, the coal is, uh, is taken, in this case, uh, the coal is taken to the top and it's uh, dumped from rail cars, uh, from the mine cars. It's brought out of the mine, it's taken on railroad tracks up to the top of the breaker. There it's dumped into large cylindrical drums uh, where it is crushed and then it begins to fall down through screens and the screens are, are uh, sort the coal according to different sizes uh, from very small to large uh, and, and, and it's washed. And it, these, uh, these sorting screens uh, are on this downward slope as the coal moves down by gravity and on these pulleys uh, through the, uh, uh, down to the coal cars at the very bottom. And these are railroad cars at the bottom. And the breaker boys, uh, or the slate pickers as they were called, uh, would sit uh, either in or along the chutes and pull out uh, the impurities as they went by, the slate, for example. How much coal would a miner mine in a day? Depended, it depended again on circumstances. If he had a good seam, and if he could, if he, if he get, if he could get to the face, in other words, where the coal was located, the seam was located, uh, fairly quickly, and there wasn't much problem uh, in terms of gas. There was no, he didn't have to clear gas. Uh, uh, he didn't have to wait for cars, and he could, uh, he had good powder. Uh, everything worked. Uh, he could probably, uh, he could probably uh, extract. Uh, um, up to 10, 12 tons in a day. Uh, but that, that was, I suppose, in the most favorable uh, circumstances. What does that translate into in terms of use? I mean, how many households? Oh, my. For, for, <laughs> how much would a household use? I don't know. Well, I'll tell year. you from, my, from well, growing yeah, up, could, we yeah, used uh, to have yeah. to cart, uh, I used to always have to go down to the cellar to bring the coal up for the coal stove in the kitchen. And I uh, always took a bucket in the morning, and uh, there'd be another, usually about uh, three, three and a half buckets a day. Uh, these buckets were, uh, oh, I guess they would hold maybe, uh, I, uh, I really can't say, I guess they would hold maybe uh, um, 20, 25 pounds of coal. Uh, so uh, you're going to have to deduct something from there. <laughs> you have to do that now after the program. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah, we used to, uh, when we bought coal by the ton, of course. Uh, yes, you bought it by the ton. Uh, you bought it by the ton. We'd probably get on, a, on, a, on an average winter, I think, probably four or five tons, I guess. Uh, of course, now we're in a coal part of the state. Um, so I, I, that's, as, that's as good as I can tell you. Yeah. When did people first start talking about unions? Well, they, almost from the beginning, but the problem was when the Irish arrived and the Welsh arrived. Um, but these early unions are easily crushed, again, because of the, uh, the extreme ethnic divisions. I mean, the Irish land here in Pennsylvania, uh, they come in through New York and Boston, but they, when they arrive here in Pennsylvania, they must have said, oh, my God, here's the English, you know. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and tremendous feuding and, and uh, incendiarism and terrorism and killing that uh, all surrounded the famous Molly Maguire riots. I mean, they're trying to organize a union then, 
but it, 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 it's very difficult because they're battling the, uh, one of the most powerful industrial combinations in the country, the, the Philadelphia and Pennsylvania Railroads. And railroads are the first and most powerful American corporations. And um, so by the 1880s, unionism, which had a promising start right after the Civil War, is uh, the union movement is moribund. And then it picks up again with really dramatic force at the end of the 19th century when John Mitchell and the United Mine Workers, a large national union that organized every aspect of the industry, and it was primarily a, an organization made up of, of bituminous miners, but Mitchell brought the, his organizers into the anthracite region, and beginning in the middle of the 1890s and right in through the early 1900s, they made a sustained, hard push to organize these workers and were successful in the end after a gigantic strike uh, in, in 1902 under uh, the administration of uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt is the first president to intervene in the labor dispute in the history of the country on the side of the workers. And the, he sets up a board of arbitration and, the, and that included uh, people like, um, well, the key person is Clarence Darrell, the representative of the miners. And um, the arbitration board rules on behalf of the miners. And shortly thereafter, the mine union is recognized by the owners. Morgan was in there, too, because Morgan wanted... Um, the J.P. Morgan? J.P. Morgan. He wanted order, uh, orderly economic development, an orderly utilization of raw materials like, like coal. And he didn't like the wildcat strikes that broke out in the region. He didn't like the constant bickering and the fierce competition among the small company owners, like people like the Pardees, the Van Wickles, and the Markles. Those names are familiar to Richard and I because they founded Lafayette College. All the, we walk around and see all their buildings. They were the smaller mine owners. So Morgan brings a measure of order to the industry and actually accepts the fact of the labor union. And, uh, and there was a modicum of peace that, that, that lasted into the, uh, in, into the 1930s. There would always be strikes, but it, it, it settles down dramatically. The ethnic tension settles down, and the friction between management and labor is not as ferocious as it was in kind of the buccaneering stage in the 19th century when the industry's really getting going. Yeah, we really have to also talk about the Molly Maguires. I wanted to ask uh, about that. Know, I want to ask each of you, because different people have different opinions on oh, this. Yeah. Are, are, they, oh, yeah. are they a precursor they, to the unions, or are they a band of yeah, murderous well, thugs? Uh, Franklin uh, Benjamin Gowan, the president of the Reading Railroad, who, who uh, brought the Mollies to trial and really destroyed the, uh, uh, the organization. I don't believe there was such an organization, either does Don. Uh, but in any case, uh, it was, uh, what, what Gowan was trying to do was to root out unionism in the coal fields, and that was in the 1870s. Uh, but as early as the Civil War, and uh, even before that, there were various associations, working men's associations, that attempted to uh, early unionization. But as Don pointed out, these were uh, largely unsuccessful. Uh, the Mollies, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's still an issue in the, in the, uh, in the region. You can, uh, depending on what side your ancestors were on, they'll tell you whether they, uh, they were great, uh, great uh, working class heroes, or whether they were, uh, you know, ruthless terrorists uh, who got what they deserved. Um, we never found an organization called the Molly Maguires, and I don't know. And to our knowledge, no other historian has either. Uh, what they were were sort of informal groups within the uh, ancient order of Hibernians, which was the fraternal organization of the Irish uh, here in North America, and uh, there were sort of uh, 
uh, informal groupings of these, uh, these uh, people who, in the interest of not only the Irish, but in the interest of working men who felt uh, that they were being exploited by individual foremen or superintendents, uh, uh, would carry out these terrorist acts, uh, going as far as murder, for example, uh, everything from murder to sabotage, uh, what have you. Uh, so, uh, so at least as far as I'm concerned, the Mollies did not exist as an organization, uh, but they were certainly, uh, there were terrorist, uh, loosely organized terrorist groups within uh, these, uh, this Irish organization. Uh, so at least that's my, uh, that's it's, my it's fix a, it's on a, the Mollies. It's a wild, crazy time, too. The Mollies, if they existed, begin to show their presence in the 1860s, of course, in the middle of the Civil War. And um, what they're protesting is uh, Lincoln's policy of the draft, conscription. It's the first conscription law ever passed in American history. They don't want to fight a war for the Union Army that's going to free black people and have those black people come north and take their jobs. That's the great fear. So there's tremendous anti-draft riots, much as uh, occurred in New York City in 1863 in the anthracite region. And in the process, there, at, the, at the same time, there is vigilante action and terrorist action against uh, against coal owners who happen to be Welsh and English. But uh, I think the key thing was you, you create in the public mind the idea that there is this Irish terrorist organization and that they're connected to the major labor union that, was trying, that the Irish were trying to organize at this time. They're two separate things. And what Gowan was successful in doing, he and the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania Railroad, is they... Paint, they paint the Mollies, you know, they paint the Union with the brush of the Molly Maguires. And so the Union, which is absolutely separate from the Molly Maguires, becomes tainted by Molly Maguireism and it becomes easy to crush that Union. So it was a, it was a very convenient device, I think. You say at the start of one of your chapters, um, your chapter on the Molly Maguires, on the east wall of cell 17 of the Carbon County Jail in <laughs> yes. Mockchunk, there is a faint outline of a human handprint. It is visible despite numerous repaintings and an attempt by a jailer to chip it out many years ago. According to legend, it was placed there by Alexander Campbell, who declared angrily, that mark of mine will never be wiped out. There it will remain forever to shame the country, the county, that is hanging an innocent man. On the morning when he supposedly put his mark on the cell wall, Campbell died on the gallows with Michael Doyle, John Yellowjack Donahue, and Edward Kelly. Is that a true story? Uh, you gotta believe. You gotta <laughs> believe it. Yes, yes. Have you seen it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. What's I it look like? Well, now you know the uh, the the Mock Chunk Jail or the Jim Thorpe Jail is now a tourist attraction, right? The whole town has become a tourist attraction. Uh, but I understand there are tours through that old jail. I don't know if you've ever you can seen see it. the handprint. Yeah, yeah I see you, the there's a faint in, yeah. outline there. There's you a can faint see outline. It. But uh, who knows? Who knows? It's a great story <laughs> in any case. And, uh, <laughs> Certainly not central to the whole the whole story of this yeah. book, but, you know, yeah, and believed by many. <laughs> yeah. But the idea is that, you know, these guys are all Irish. And, uh, uh, and of course, the Irish as a people at this particular time were, uh, were at the bottom of the, of the social ladder in, in the anthracite region, you know. So. And they've just arrived. They're carrying with them the traditions of Irish resistance. I mean, this is how the Irish resisted the British landlords through informal gangs like this called the White Boys or the Molly Maguires or whatever you want to call them. And one group would appear and then disappear. Who were the White Boys? Well, they were crushed. But then 
they, they, they reassemble somewhere else and, and, and call themselves something different. So um, this, is, this is how they, how they fought. They came here, unlike later immigrants, with a tradition of, of hostility toward, uh, well, uh, let's put it this way, with a willingness to take concerted, organized action against people who exploited them because they were used to doing that. And that's why you have so much violence in, in the region. That didn't happen with Slavic immigrants. It didn't happen with Irish immigrants who didn't have that same concerted uh, vigilante action occurring against landlords and, and, and powerful uh, political interest in the old country. And, uh, but the Irish did. They had been fighting back for, for 300 years in Ireland. When did the industry start to decline? Really after the First World War in the 1920s. And uh, there were a number of reasons, uh, chiefly the, uh, the beginning use of, uh, of oil and uh, gas, natural gas, as, uh, as heating oil and as cooking oil and also in, in industrial uses. Uh, and so this marked the beginning of the decline. The Great Depression of the 1930s occurred in the, in the coal region of Pennsylvania, in the anthracite region, about a decade earlier. And so, but there were also, uh, as a result of the decline, there were also many strikes as well, as uh, miners were attempting to, through the United Mine Workers, to, uh, uh, to defend their interests, to defend their position. And I suspect, too, that, the, uh, uh, that these laborers' strikes in the 1920s contributed as well. Uh, in some cases, for example, uh, consumers of anthracites simply switched to other uh, fuels uh, because of the strikes and the shortages. So, it was in the 1920s, and uh, there, was a, there was a brief uh, uptick during World War II. Uh, but after that, it was, you know, it was pretty much gone. How much anthracite mining is going on right now? Not a lot. Very More than there was probably 15 years ago. There's some mining, some active mining in the Pottsville area. Um, they're using a lot of coal refuse. They have coal conversion plants in um, Mount Carmel, right? Yeah, around, around Mount Carmel. Um, so there's not a lot of activity, but there's an awful lot of coal up there. And a lot of energy people that we were meeting in Washington years ago are, are claiming that, you know, as we move toward the next energy age, what is it going to be? We go through the water and wood and then oil and gas and coal and what's next? You know, is it going to be underwater? Is it going to be solar? Nucle well, nuclear seems to be out of the box now. One of the prevailing arguments was that there's enough anthracite available to act as a kind of a bridge fuel if, if, if the country ever did yeah, more, get There's still control. more anthracite in the ground than has been mined. Right. And when we finished the book, I think of, at that time, uh, in the mid-1980s, about six million tons a year were being mined. And most of that, of course, through, uh, through uh, stripping methods. In other words, the overburden of the earth mm -hmm. was stripped away. What's it being used for now? Uh, it is being used in various industrial, for industrial uses, and there's some, uh, there's some use in residence, residences, too, um, as, a, as a home heating oil. Um, I, I suspect that eventually uh, it, it will, in some fashion, uh, make a comeback, perhaps not the way it did before, uh, not the way it was before, but certainly I think it has its potentials. Well, I said at the start of this program that we would... Uh probably be able to do an hour on each chapter of the book and unfortunately we're out of time <laughs> and we barely scratched the surface but this is the cover of the book we've been talking about the kingdom of coal donald miller and richard sharpless thanks very much thank, thank you. you thank you thank pleasure you. to be here you've been listening to a podcast of pa books a production of pcn the pennsylvania cable network 
Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.